eyes uh, on a copy of God's Word, Malachi 2. Uh, Malachi 2 is where we're going to be, and uh, I'm guessing most of you have been on an airplane uh, at some point in time in your life, and as you're turning to Malachi 2, let's start with this thought of being on an airplane, and the pilot comes on uh, over the speaker and says something to this effect. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. We've experienced, so we're experiencing some turbulence. Now, what do they say next? Go back to your seat and put on your seatbelt, okay? So here you go, listen, listen, listen. This is me telling you, put on your seatbelt. It's going to get turbulent, all right? God's word is going to just come smashing uh, into our face in some areas of our life here this morning. So you've been, you've been duly warned up front that it's going to get a little bit bumpy in here, okay? Uh, and as always, we want God's word uh, to speak uh, for itself. We want to let the lion out of the cage. We want God to speak and uh, no one else. And so as we come to uh, Malachi 2, and we continue in our sermon series on Malachi, persistent love, a couple things that we're going to see. Uh, first of all, this is really we begin to see the persistence of God's love to his people, right? And, and we'll see... Uh, we've seen the faithlessness of the priests. Now we get to see it uh, unfold, the, the faithlessness unfold in the people. And that's why the, the subtitle there, God's Pursuit of a Rebellious People. And God pursuing uh, people who are anything but faithful. And uh, here we'll see very, very clearly the brazen sinfulness of the people in the face of God himself. Uh, which, if we're honest, really isn't a far cry from the world that we live in uh, today. And so here, just at the outset, where are we going? What does God have for us? What does he want to say? If I could say it in a sentence, I would say it this way. Listen very carefully, loved ones. God wants your heart. God wants your heart, not your rituals. God wants your heart. He doesn't want your spiritual duties. God wants your heart. He doesn't want some spiritual service that is far from him. So the title of the message this morning, title of the message is Quit Playing Spiritual Games Before a Holy God. I mean, even that statement, if we're honest, is a little bit scary, isn't it? That's kind of a terrifying thought. Wait, I'm playing a game? I'm playing a game with my spirituality before God? That in of itself makes it a little bit bumpy in here. And I'll just tell you, my commitment to us is that I'm going to engage this as honestly and as graciously as I know how. We're not going to back away from the truth of God's word, and we're not going to back away from the grace of God. We're going to let both of them uh, speak into our hearts and minds here uh, this morning. So I think it would be wise of us to get before the Lord, uh, to ask him to have his way with us, and to move and work amongst us here this morning. Why don't you pray with me? Uh, Lord Jesus, we come before you. God, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you Uh, that you give us this feast. And uh, God, we ask that uh, as we come before you now, that you would be honored in all things. God, that you would be lifted high, that you would be glorified, that your word would come forward. And God, as your word comes forward, I pray that our hearts would be soft and would hear it. And that we would respond, that your spirit would have the freedom to engage and to, to challenge, to convict, to encourage, to whatever it is that we need, God, that you would speak in, that you would press in in the areas of our lives where we so desperately need you to speak. God, not only for us, I pray for Pastor Dennis Haroldson, we pray for Providence Christian Church, and I pray for 
uh, Dennis as he's preaching this morning. God, we pray that uh, as you speak through him, as you minister through him, that your word would go forth and that the people, people of Providence Christian Church, God, that you would have their hearts and not simply their rituals. God, we ask you, we just ask you in the fullness of your power and the fullness of your supremacy to move and work for your goodwill here amongst your people this morning. And the God, that we would quit playing spiritual games, that we would quit playing games before a holy God. God, help us that that would be true of us. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, let me do this. Let me start uh, by reading. I want to just read through uh, Malachi 2. I want you to hear uh, what God's word has to say, and then we'll walk back through the text uh, here this morning. So I'm starting in verse 10, Malachi 2, starting in verse 10. Here's what God's word says to us. It says, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say... Why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So let's just begin to press in, loved ones, into what God has for us here this morning, the truth of what his word uh, is after in our lives. Uh, quit playing spiritual games before a holy God. Two things, just two things that we'll focus our time around here uh, this morning. Here's the first. We see it in verses 10 through 12. It's that we reject all forms of idolatry. That we reject all forms of idolatry. And you might go, wait, what, what are you talking about? I don't even see where he's talking about idolatry. Where, where do you see that? Well, let's here. Let's just start walking through the text and, and, and see what God's really talking about here. He starts in verse 10 by saying, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us, right? And he's referring back to this family aspect that God calls us all to be one in him. And certainly the, the, the nation of Israel would have understood that and appealing to that reality. But then he goes on and he says this, why then are we faithless to one another? Right, no surprise, no surprise they're faithless to one another. If you can't be faithful to God, you're certainly not going to be faithful to others. Okay, that's, that's a, uh, a no-brainer. And then he begins to discuss the faithlessness of the people. They've profaned the covenant of the fathers. Right, to be faithless, to profane, it means to pollute or to, to dishonor, to defile. It means they violated the covenant. They've done the very thing that God said, don't do this. Verse 11, Judah has been faithless. And then this word abomination shows up. Now, abomination, it literally means something that's detestable. Uh, it's tied to, this is what's tied to idolatry through the committing of sinful acts. It's the worship of false gods. 
In fact, repeatedly in the Old Testament, when we see the word abomination, we almost always see it tied to this notion of worshiping false gods. In Deuteronomy 32, uh, they're talking about uh, worship and offerings to false gods, and it says they stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. 1 Kings 14 talks about uh, they did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. They went and did the very thing that God said, don't do this. And in 2 Kings 16, probably one of the most despicable and disgusting of uh, the forms of uh, false worship, speaking of one of the kings, uh, he says he even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices or abominations of the nations. They sacrificed their child in an attempt to appease a false god. That's what he's talking about. It's idolatry. We see this further at the end of verse 11. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. See, they went out and married foreign women. And when you, uh, certainly in that day and age, God, God had made it very clear, don't do that. In fact, he had forbidden the Jews to marry uh, foreign women because uh, typically what would happen when you would marry a woman of foreign descent, it often came with the responsibility or the obligation to worship that foreign god. So God said, hey, I'll tell you what, right at the outset, just avoid that. Have nothing to do with that. Don't get sucked into that. It's going to go very, very poorly for you. So we begin to see this, this idolatry begin to show up. And then you see in verse 12, it looks so harsh at first. When you begin to understand what's really going on, it, it's, it's not at all harsh. It says, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. It's like, wait, why would God kick someone out of the assembly when he's trying to offer something to God? Well, it's what we see in verses 10 and 11. See, do you, do you realize what he's trying to do? He, he, he's trying to ride the fence here. He, he's trying, I want the blessing and the benefit of following God, but I want to do it on my terms and in my way and the ways that are comfortable and best for me. So God, I want the blessings of following you, but I'm going to marry women that you tell us not to marry. I'm going to worship gods you tell us not to worship, and I'm going to live in a particular manner that you have explicitly told us don't do this. So he's straddling the fence. He's got a foot in both sides, each world. Is that true of you? Are you trying to straddle the fence in your life? Do you want the blessings of God? I want the benefit of God. I want the favor of God in my life. But I want to do it on my terms and in my way. See, I think for far too many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, at some level, this is exactly what our lives look like. And yet God is saying what? Saying, cut him off. Get rid of him. I want nothing to do with him is what God is really saying. So you got, you got to hear this. you got to know this. God has no interest. Listen very, very carefully. God has no interest in an offering, in service, in spiritual duty, in some religious obligation. God has no interest in that if you would attempt to do that with a heart that is far from God. He has no interest in that. In fact, not only does God have no interest in that, I'll take it a step further for you because the scriptures will take it a step further for us. He's repulsed by it and he hates it. Now, hate's a word that sometimes we can get kind of casual with. Um, but in the biblical sense, to say that you hate something, there's really nothing stronger than that. So hear me when I read to you out of Amos 5 what God says. 
I hate, there it is, I hate, I despise. Okay, God, what is it that you hate? What is it that you despise? I hate your feasts. Well, feast was a spiritual celebration tied to God. Wait, wait, why, why would you hate that? Well, here's why. I hate your feast and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. See, he's saying, you, you attempt to come at me with this spiritual duty, with this spiritual obligation, but the reality is, is your heart is far from me. Here, let me read to you what Isaiah 1 tells us in respect to this. Isaiah 1, starting in verse 10, says, Hear the word of the Lord. And here's what, goes, what God goes on to say in verses 11 and following. He says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this trampling of my courts? He's like, man, I am sick and tired of the pitter-patter of your feet, offering offerings and sacrifices when your heart is far from me. He says this, he says, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. He's like, I can't deal anymore with your constant sinfulness and your attempt to appeal to me through sacrifice. And then he goes on, he says this. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me and I am weary of bearing them. See, loved ones, God's after your heart. God's after your heart. We talk about heart transformation and then behavior modification. It doesn't work the other way around. You'll never transform your heart trying to modify the behavior. The heart has to change first. And we think about God being repulsed and despising this attempt to serve him in some capacity, but our hearts are far from him. And yet how many churches and how many churches in our country today, maybe how many people in this room right now, does God despise your offering of being at church? Because you're here for all the wrong reasons. You're here to check something off. You're here to appease God. You're here because it's like, well, this is what I do or it's tradition or I have to. God will be really impressed if I go endure an hour and a half of church. No, God is disgusted in that. How many of us this week open up the scriptures? I'm going to read my Bible because God tells me I have to, and so I can check it off my list. Man, God must be so impressed with how spiritual I am that I read the scriptures. Nope. Not with an attitude like that, he's not. How many of us have gone to the Lord in prayer this week? but our heart is far from him. How many of us serve somebody, but we've done it for all the wrong reasons? I can go on and on and on. I think you get the point. God's not interested. He's not interested in the service, um, divorced of the heart. Hosea 6 says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He's like, man, I want your heart. That's what I'm after. That's what I'm longing for. Right? We said at the beginning, God wants your heart, not your rituals. See, what God is telling the people of Malachi and what he's telling Faith Church here this morning is, get away from me with your heartless offerings. Like, get away from me with that. I'm not impressed. I'm not wowed. I'm not overwhelmed. Just don't do it. Just don't do it. It's like, I want your heart. If I don't have it, don't come at me with some cheap offering. 
And yet the reality is when we think in our lives and our um, hearts today, there's so much that competes for our attention. And in Malachi 2 here, it shows up in the form of idolatry. Now, for many of us, when we hear the word idolatry today, most of us tend to think of what idolatry looked like back in Malachi's day or back in Jesus' day, and we think of some little wooden or stone statue, and, and maybe you put it on a mantle or someplace in your house, and you pray to it, or you burn incense to it, or whatever, right? That, that's what a lot of us think when it comes to idolatry. Now, I would suggest to you that most, if not all of you, probably have nothing like that in your home. And so you're like, well, see, yeah, idolatry is not really an issue in my life, Mike. <laughs> yeah, that's what you think. Um, I would suggest to you that idolatry is just as prevalent, if not more so today, than it was in Malachi's day or it was in Jesus' day. See, the danger, the danger is, is it doesn't show up in little wooden or stone statues. It shows up in much more subtle ways, and so it's much uh, more difficult and harder for us to identify. And so, so instead of, well, I don't have that thing in my life. I don't have the God of pine trees or clouds or whatever that I burn some incense to. So, hey, man, I'm off the hook and I'm good. The reality is, is that for all of us, all of us, we wrestle with idolatry in our lives. And what happens often, often, often is we have things in our life that become what you could call functional saviors. Let me tell you what a functional savior is. A functional savior is some, something or someone that would take, take Christ's rightful place in your life by becoming the primary source of your hope, your trust, your security, your identity, your love, your affection, your comfort, your passion, your excitement, or any host of other things that belong primarily or solely to Jesus Christ and to Him alone. And so instead of Jesus being your comfort, instead of Christ being your rock of refuge, instead of him being the one that you go to in a time of crisis or difficulty, that your functional savior, these idols, become that. In fact, I believe there's a number of functional saviors today. In a moment, I'm going to give you six, six common functional saviors in our society. But let me just say two things here before we get into that. One is that you have to understand when it comes to functional saviors, when it comes to idols and it comes to idolatry, the real issue is that ultimately you worship yourself above God. You have become the object of worship. You have become the object of affection in your life. And so as we walk through these things, this isn't just simply informational, like, oh, that's kind of interesting and I can apply that to my wife or my coworker or my neighbor or my friend. No, you've got to apply it in your own life. And begin to ask yourself, where do I have functional idols where, or functional saviors? Where do I have idolatry showing up in my life? Here's the second thing you've got to understand. Is that most, if not all, of the things that I'm going to mention here this morning are morally neutral or morally good. Most of the things that we create idols out of, most of the things that we create functional saviors out of, aren't bad things, they're good things. And Mark Driscoll rightly said, speaking of, of idolatry or functional saviors, when a good thing becomes a God thing, that's a bad thing. When a good thing becomes a God thing, that's a bad thing. And that's exactly what we do is we take something and we put it in Christ's rightful place in our life. So here we go. Here's six. Six idols, six functional saviors uh, in our society, in our uh, lives today that make us no different than Malachi and what he's talking about here. Here's the first one. Just ask yourself, right? Is this an idol in my life? As we go through each of these, the idol of pleasure the idol of pleasure. Now, this is seen in a lot of ways. Seen in a lot of ways in our society. Probably one of the most prominent ways is the hypersexuality uh, of who we are as a nation. 
that we find our satisfaction, we find our delight, that we find our contentment, our comfort, our identity, in that we are pleased or there's pleasure for us. We see this in the constant pursuit of entertainment, that we seek to be entertained or amused or distracted, that I seek something else to fill me. It's the heart that says, if I'm happy, that's all that really matters, or that's the most important thing that matters. Now, the, the distortion in this is that we take something that God has given us something to enjoy, that he's given us something good to enjoy, and we make a God out of it. The very thing that God gave us to enjoy, and we replace Jesus with it. Furthermore, we don't recognize, we don't recognize God's primary intent for us. And that God's primary desire for us is not to make us happy, it's to make us holy. And of course, the irony in that is as God makes us holy, what happens? We're happy, right? There's satisfaction in that. But the idol of pleasure, and what in your life, what in your life do you seek when, when it comes with respect to pleasure that dethrones Jesus of his rightful place in your life? There's the second one, the idol of security. The idol of security, that my, my home, my bank account, my job, my retirement, uh, this might shock some of you, insurance, guns, other forms of protection. But again, nothing inherently wrong with any of those things. But where they become my source of comfort, they become my source of hope, they become my identity. Maybe here's a good way of thinking about this. When a time of crisis comes, when a time of difficulty comes, what is it that I cling to? What is it that I go, oh, I'm so glad that you're here. Oh, bank account, you've rescued me. That's an idol. I mean, that's the reality, loved ones, is you have an idol in your life. What's my safety net? Well, if things fall apart, I've always got my retirement. That means you're trusting in your retirement and not in Christ. Do, do, do you see how we take good things and make gods out of them? That becomes my security. That's what's going to sustain me. That's what's going to uphold me. That's going to protect me. These things are not your security. Jesus is your security. Here's the third thing. This is, this is really the American idol, man. This is the one that we've made so prominent. It's the idol of success. It's this notion of self-sufficient. I did it on my own, man. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I made it happen. So that my identity is found in my accomplishments or my achievements. Not, listen very carefully, not in the finished work of Christ. What defines me is how successful I am at becoming the CEO of nobody cares. That's what defines me. And that's the reality. Nobody really does care. And yet you've chosen to worship a false God in the process. That my success, that, that my, my hope rises and falls on my performance. Not on what Christ has already performed. I'll just tell you, right, this is the, um, you overachievers, you workaholics, this is where you tend to want to drive yourself towards. This is where I'm going to find my identity. This is where I'm going to find my security. This is my comfort, my hope, my whatever it is. I should just tell you, just in, in 
complete fairness, God hates, listen very carefully, here's something else God hates. God hates the lie of self-sufficiency. He hates it. As a country, we love to talk about it. We value it, man. It's, oh, yeah, it's, we're, we can do it on our own. And God's saying, you have never been able to do it on your own. That's why I came. Like, don't delude yourself. You were never even close to being able to do it on your own. Don't buy into that lie, loved ones. There is no such thing as self-sufficiency. Here's the fourth, fourth idol in our, in our world, in our lives. It's the idol of appearance. Right, we're so appearance conscious, right? Fitness, uh, eating. Now, now I'll tell you, eating can go either way, right? That can go both ways. You can do the gluttony thing where there's no restraint, okay? And scripture's very clear. Uh, that's a problem. That's a false God that I worship food. And you can go the other way too, where I'm so conscious, conscious of everything that goes into my body that it consumes my life. Equally wrong. Now, I'm all for everyone being healthy. I'm for, all for us eating healthy. I'm for exercise. Those are good things. But again, when it drives my life, when a good thing becomes a God thing, it's a bad thing. And this idol of appearance, right? Fashion. All right, we live in New Mexico. No one cares about fashion here, but <laughs> that's what I love about this place, man. Right? But, but, but the idea... The idea that, and, and we get this. Ladies, how many times have you said this? If I had her blank. Right? Guys, how many times, if I just had his blank? His car, right? Yeah, usually it's stuff. Guys don't care as much about the appearance thing. It's a different form, right? Just a different aspect of the appearance. Right? But my satisfaction, my hope, my identity is tied to how I appear, not to who I am in Christ. Here's the fifth one. This is the Christian one. This, right? Even as believers, this just proves our depravity and how sinful we are. It's the idol of righteousness. It's, it's where we take service and family and ministry fruitfulness and, and, and personal holiness, and we make that that's who I am, not who Jesus is. Says I am. And that becomes the thing that becomes my source, man. That, 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 that defines me. That I'm a great husband, that I'm a great wife, that I'm the best mother. That look at how many people I witness to. Look at how often I pray. And it's like, man, you, your identity is found in your righteousness. Which in case you're wondering, you have none. You only have the righteousness of Christ. And here's the final one. I think this one is just exploding in Christianity as well as our society, but it's the idol of comfort. We want to be comfortable. In fact, so much so that, I mean, just listen to how believers talk, listen to how we pray. Listen to the perspective we take on different matters, on different issues. See, I think, I think the problem is far too many of us, we, we treat life as if God owes us some five-star accommodation in everything. It's, it's a life that says, God, my life should be free of any struggle. There should be an absence of struggle in my life. 
And like, can you, like, I, I can show you hundreds, maybe thousands of verses that would um, be contrary to that. I can't show you any that would support that. And yet we chase comfort, we value it, we hold it high in ways that are simply not healthy. I mean, in fact, even, I, I was thinking about this, even the way in which we will often share the gospel with people. If you'll follow Jesus, he'll take away your problems. Right? He's this little comfort idol. Hey, man, if you rub the genie the right way, he'll come out and he'll solve everything for you. And it's disgusting. And too often, loved ones, too often, I believe the reality is is that we would choose comfort over Jesus, especially if following Jesus meant we knew that we would have to struggle. That is the reality. Following Jesus does mean that we have to struggle. It is difficult. It is hard. The scriptures are unflinchingly clear on that. But when you look at the issue in Malachi's day, and you look at the issues in our day, it really isn't any different, is it? Right, for them, it showed up with foreign gods and foreign women. For us, it shows up in a variety of different ways. But it's the same concept. And that we have to reject idolatry. We have to reject functional saviors. We have, to, we have to be done with anyone or anything that would attempt to take Christ's rightful place in our lives. No more. God, no more will I allow this to be true. Got to get away. Got to get away from the idea that I could devote my life. I could devote my life to um, success or righteousness or appearance um, or, or, or any of these other idols. And, and certainly there are others that would be included in that list as well. That I can devote my life to that, but then somehow be like, God, I want also all the blessings and benefits of following you. We've got to be done with that. And just say, God, I'm going to reject the notion that I can put someone or something else on the throne in your place. And have you shown up powerfully in my life? Reject all forms. Reject all forms of idolatry. And that's why God says in verse 12, I'm going to cut them off. I'm going to cut them off. He who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts, right? This idea that I could offer this offering to God in that moment, and yet my heart is far from him. Reject all forms of idolatry. Here's the second thing. Reject all forms of faithlessness and unrepentance. Really, in, in some respects, very comparable, very similar to the same thing that we just talked about, but we see a different aspect uh, to it here, uh, really focusing on the faithlessness and the unrepentance of the people. And so notice, verse 13, right, the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears. Now, that, that seems like a good thing to be broken before the Lord, right? With tears, with weeping and groaning. And then we get to the motivation, not because you've wronged God, not because you've sinned before him, not because you recognize your depravity and his holiness, but why? Because he no longer regards it, the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Because God has said, I'm done playing your silly, lame game. Get away from me with that. Their sorrow and their brokenness is not repentance. In fact, it's just the opposite of that. It's that they want to continue in their sinful lifestyle, but they still want God to have favor and, and bestow favor upon them. And that's why in verse 14, but, but you say, why does he not? I mean, they, they can't even identify the fact of, of, of their sin in their lives. So they're not interested in changing. They just want God to accommodate their sinfulness. Are you doing that in your life? Are you doing that in your life? Or are, you, are you living in a way where you're expecting God to accommodate your sinfulness? God, I want your blessing, I want your favor, but I'm going to keep doing my thing. No doubt, no doubt you would have a similar experience where God's like, I'm not showing up in that. 
Because you wouldn't do that for someone else in your life. So why in the world would God do that for you and I? I mean, that's that's a crazy notion. And then he begins to talk about this issue here. Right, so let's, let's address the 15-ton elephant in the room here because the rest of the passage deals with this concept of divorce. So let's not make more of this than is here and let's not make less of this than is here. We want the truth of God's word to come out. So let me just say a couple things in respect to divorce in this passage. First of all, what Malachi is addressing isn't centered on divorce itself. It's centered on a heartless, faithless, unrepentant um, pursuit of the people to continue to offer offerings before God, even though their heart is far from him. Divorce becomes the means and the manner in which that faithlessness is demonstrated. Because essentially what the people were saying is, I'm going to divorce my wife, uh, even though you told me not to. Uh, I'm going to go marry foreign women, even though you told me not to. I'm going to go serve foreign gods, even though you told me not to. And now, God, I want you to bless me in all this. I mean, when you put it like that, it's just insane, isn't it? And yet I wonder for how many of us, you can change those aspects over here, and yet that's what our life looks like. God, I will not spend any time with you. I will not serve you. I will not give of myself to you. I will not put the kingdom first, but man, I want you to show up powerfully in my life. It's like, I'm not having any of that. Like, God's not a puppet. You don't put God on some string and manipulate him. And far too often, we want to do the same thing that that they were doing. And so the issue here, it's not centered on divorce. Divorce was an example of the heartless, faithless, unrepentant response of the people. Further, he goes on and he speaks. Look at verse 15. Did he not make them one? Now, verse 15, you can't read verse 15 without thinking of Genesis 1 and 2, man. It's like rich, rich, rich in this passage. Did he not make them one, right? The two will become one flesh with a portion of the Spirit in their union. And what what was the one God seeking? He was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. And so it's this context of marriage, this context of, of the, the covenant relationship. And, and see, here's what you've got to understand. When it comes to marriage, and, 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 and all of that rooted in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, that was God's intent from the beginning. God's intent for marriage in the beginning, one man, one woman, for life, period. Now what's interesting, what's interesting is, is in this particular time, <clears throat> some of the people it's supposed or believed that some of uh, the people who were doing this had this quasi-theological explanation for it. Because while monogamy was from the very beginning, God made that very clear, that wasn't always practiced in the nation of Israel, was it? And sometimes people get hung up on that. Well, Well, these guys had multiple wives, right? But God never told them to. God never approved of that. The scriptures are just describing that to us. And at the time of Malachi, it's believed that monogamy was really beginning to grip the community like, hey, this is really the only way that we should do this. And so the, the, the response of the people was, well, I am honoring God because I don't want to have two wives because that's wrong. So I'm going to divorce the first wife and then I'll go live in a monogamous relationship with the second wife. Okay, that's an epic fail, all right? 
That's just a bad idea all the way around. Sin in the process to accomplish righteousness in the end is never, ever, ever God's intent. God will never honor that, okay? Now, when it comes to this issue of of divorce with respect to this, here's, here's what I've found with people. If you've been divorced, if you've lived through that, um, you don't need me or anyone else to tell you how painful it is. Uh, you don't need myself or anyone else to tell you about the consequences. Uh, you don't need uh, myself or anyone else to tell you that it's wrong. You've, 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 you've got that. That's clear. And so when, when, I, when I come at passages like this as a pastor, I always wrestle with the tension of um, the truth of God. Let's call it what it is, okay? Let's be honest. Let's be candid. Divorce is a sin. We, we can't not say that, loved ones. But then we have to hold that intention with the grace of God. That God forgives and that God redeems and that God makes right. And so sometimes, sometimes we, we tend to vacillate to one side or the other. And, and we go, if you've ever been divorced, then we're going to bury you under the truth. And it's absent of any grace. And then sometimes we come to the other side and we go, well, you know, hey, it's okay. God forgives. It's not a big deal. Okay, well, both of those are wrong responses. We have to have the fullness of grace and truth. And so let me just, let, let, me, let me treat it in this way with this respect uh, of divorce. I don't want to bury, I don't want to bury you. Uh, those of you who have been through this, and I also don't want to lighten God's uh, very stern warning in this. So let's just maybe say it this way. If you've been divorced and you have repented and sought to get right with God, then I would exhort you and implore you to continue in his grace and just move forward. Okay? Um, if you have been divorced and you have not repented. You have not sought God out. Maybe, maybe you got married and divorced before you were a believer and you didn't know. Okay, well, now you know. And God, I gotta get right with you. And I, I wanna see that restored. You give before the Lord, you seek restoration in that, and then you move forward in his grace. If you've been divorced and haven't repented, if you've, um, maybe you find yourself in a marriage right now, but you're contemplating divorce, that's a very palatable option. Man, I've... Right, the grass looks greener. Right, you need to hear the stern warning. If you're single and you've not been married, maybe you're pursuing that and you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, if it doesn't work out, I can just always get divorced. No, 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 that's not, that's never God's intent. Right, if you find yourself in one of those places, you need to repent, you need to correct course, you need to let the weight of this warning press in on you and will ultimately move you to that place of grace. But notice this oneness we see in verse 15, and you come to verse 16. My translation says, for the man who hates and divorces, some of your, maybe many of your translations say, for God hates divorce, or the Lord, the God of Israel, says that he hates divorce. And you're like, Mike, that's a huge distinction there. What is the text really telling us? Well, it's really the same thing. God hates divorce, and a man who divorces hates It's a both and. And really the point, the thrust that Malachi is after is not the hating and divorcing. It's what we see next. Covers his garment with violence. Now there's a duality that's taking place here. One, the violence of divorce, the violence of the breaking of that relationship. But then there's a sacrificial understanding and implication here. See, covering their garments with violence, it literally means to cover your garments with blood. 
It's the person who would walk away from their first marriage, go pursue a second marriage with a foreign woman in complete rejection and rebellion to God. And yet, you know what they're doing the whole time? Their garments are being covered by the blood of animals being sacrificed at the altar. That's what he's talking about. And God's saying, I have no interest in that. I have no desire for you to come at me with these lame offerings when your heart is far from me. That I'm going to live in complete sinfulness, but I'm going to try to put it all together in front of God. Right, this idea that I can sin in the process to, to arrive at this place where I can somehow in my mind, it's theologically, some quasi-theologically justified reason. I mean, could you imagine if you came to me and you said, hey, um, my great news, I can give more to the church. What happened? Well, I cheated on my taxes, but it saved me a couple of grand. So isn't that great? Tell you what, don't put any of that in the offering plate. Call the IRS Monday morning and get it right. Hey, I'm able to serve more of these people. Why is that? Well, I'm stealing things from my employer, and now I don't have to buy them for myself. Yeah, how about you not do that, and you let God provide in a more righteous way? See, that's, that's what's going on is this faithlessness. Now here, the specific example was marriage and divorce. The bigger principle was the people were faithless to God's command and they were unrepentant. So now turn and let's press into your life here for a moment. Let's press into my life for a moment. And let's just start by engaging both of those issues. Am I faithful or am I faithless to God's command? The overarching response in my life is that I do what God says or I don't do what he says, which is what makes the second question so critical and important. When I fail, and no doubt you'll fail, we'll all fail, we're going to fail many times, but when I fail, the response is repentance, a turning from sin and turning towards God, a seeking to be restored with God, or a hardened, calloused heart. See, if we just let the text itself begin to speak to us, here's, here's some of the things that maybe we would ask ourselves. Do you heap up tears on the altar of God, but not out of repentance, not out of brokenness, but because God won't give you what you want even though your heart is far from him? I mean, are you broken over the fact that God's not listening to you because you're sinful or because you don't give what you want? Is God a witness to your unfaithfulness, which is yes, all the time, by the way? And in that, do you still choose to live in unrepentance and a hardened, calloused heart? Has God not made clear the commands in your life through his word? And do we still yet reject them? Do you cover your garment with the blood of sacrifices, but continue to live in sin? Are you playing spiritual games before a holy God? Are you taking what God has called you to do, called you to be, and the fullness of the gospel, and are you playing a game before God with that? And if so, if so, listen very carefully, loved ones. You start first by repenting. You confess your sin. You get before God. You say, God, God, forgive me. 
Forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for my wrong. Help me to change. You seek his forgiveness. And then listen, listen, listen. This is what I think is so critically important. And in that completely broken place, you throw yourselves entirely into the gospel of God's grace. Are you tracking with me on that? That I recognize that the, the fullness and the weight of my sin before God, that it breaks me. And then my response is not, well, I'm going to fix this. You can't fix it. My response is I'm going to throw myself into the fullness of the, of the gospel of God's grace. I'm going to throw myself into the fullness of his mercy. I'm going to throw myself into the fullness of his redemption and reconciliation and restoration. And I'm going to come right back to the foot of the cross. I'm going to say, Jesus, Jesus, I need you to heal, to forgive, to restore, to make right. Jesus, I so desperately need you in this. As you do that, as you do that, we begin to help God to embrace him and him alone that we free ourselves of idols, that we free ourselves from functional saviors, that we don't begin to, to put things in our life that become our primary source of hope or trust or security or passion or conviction or things of that nature. And then by God's help, by God's grace, he leads us into being faithful and to seeking repentance when we're not. See, that's what Malachi's after. That's what God is after here this morning, that he wants us to quit playing the game. Quit playing the game! Quit playing spiritual games before a holy God. Now, I can't, think, I can't think of a better way to respond to this than by coming to the communion table. And uh, I, just, I just wrote in my notes, thank God for communion. Right? Not, not, not the act in and of itself. Right? I mean, yeah, okay, God, I'm thankful for wafers and grape juice. That's great, right? But God, thank you. God, thank you that there's provision. God, thank you that the cross is sufficient. God, thank you that you've covered the fullness of my sin. God, thank you that in my worship of false gods, that in my rejection and rebellion of you, that in my waffling and wandering away from you, that there's redemption and hope and grace in that. God, thank you that we can come and we can celebrate what you've done for us. So as we come to the communion table this morning, loved ones, here's my encouragement for all of us. That we come with an attitude where we ask God, God, would you expose areas in my life where, where I've put someone or something on the throne of my life and I've removed you from your rightful place. God, are, are there areas in my life where I've been faithless um, and I've been unrepentant? God, maybe there's other areas in my life that I'm, I'm clearly aware of my unrepentance. But would, God, would you break my hardened heart here this morning? That wherever God has you, whatever it is in your life, that he would break you. Right? We talked last week about standing in awe, in God, of, uh, in awe of God and that, that, that to be shattered or broken before him, that God would do that here in this moment. Now, at Faith Church, we practice what is called an open communion which means um, you don't have to be a member of the church. You just have to be a follower of Jesus Christ to participate. And uh, if you're not a follower of Christ, we would ask that you abstain. Or I think a better alternative would be that in this moment right now, uh, just between yourself and the Lord, where you would uh, turn from sin and turn towards Jesus, uh, trusting in him and him alone to save you and redeem you. And that today would be the day in which you come to new life in Christ 
I think that's a way better alternative than abstaining, but if you want to fight that, that's uh, between yourself and the Lord. In a moment, I'm going to release us. I'm going to ask you to come. We have three tables up front, two in the back. Uh, Grab the elements. Take them back to your seat. We'll partake together. But as you come, listen, listen, listen. As you come, understanding the weight and the magnitude that we do this to remember what Christ has done for us. That the King of kings and the Lord of lords the sovereign over all things paid the price for you and I to be right with him. That is why we do this. Do not, do not, do not do the very thing that we just talked about. Do not play a game. Do not play some spiritual game with what is in front of us.